0: Welcome to The World Awaits, travel tales to inspire your wanderlust.
1: I'm Kirsty Bedford, journalist, editor and travel writer. And I'm Belinda Jackson, author, travel journalist and columnist, and we're your weekly co-hosts. Welcome back to The World Awaits. How are you all? Hi everyone. Well, to kick things off we are uh, this week, I think you have a little bit of news to share with us, Belle. Oh, maybe I do, Kirsty. Yes, I've just won the inaugural. I can't believe it. I've just won the inaugural award for travel writer of the year for Media, which is the world's largest online news portal for the travel industry. So it's a new award and it goes out to the most widely read story on the platform, which was my story about glamping in Saudi Arabia, um, which is just incredible. It was, um, I was staying at the Habitas Resort which is the first five-star property to open in the Alula oasis in the north of the country. And Alula is now the absolute jewel of Saudi's tourism offerings. And I think people were just genuinely curious to know about this little visited and little-known destination that had been basically closed to, you know, to non-Muslim travellers for for decades so um it was be really exciting
0: oh absolutely they are and um and bell was also awarded australian travel writer of the year from the australian society of travel writers last year so it's safe to say there's no denying who the leading travel journalist in australia is i know you, you <laughs> hate me saying all this and um but hey joining our podcast means you get to listen to her and valuable insights every week um so recommend us to your friends um it's honestly such a privilege to do this with you every week, Belle, and we're heading into seven months of podcasting, and I'm so proud to have you as my co-host and my friend, um, and you're so deserving of this award. Few people really do work as hard as you and or have the connections and travel in from your vast travels around the world, and also no one really has the same expertise as you as the leading Australian journalist on the Middle East. So big round of applause for my friend um, who now officially goes down in history as the inaugural Australian Travel Writer of the Year of Travmedia and if you want to check out Belle's awards and some of her amazing stories it's all on her website globalsalsa.com so check it out.
1: Well, thanks so much, guys. The award was presented in Sydney at our travel industry conference, which is run by Trav Media and that connects the media with tourism boards from all over the world. And the guest speaker was the CNN anchor and travel extraordinaire, Richard Quest, who is just so flamboyant and knowledgeable about travel. The man has been to every corner of the globe. I've seen him riding yaks and sailing in Zanzibar. You can find him on CNN, on its travel portal at cnn.com. And I'm going to put that in the show notes because he is so great. He's so knowledgeable. It's really, um, you know, one voice for the industry that you don't want to miss out on.
0: Love Belle's way of trying to get the attention of her incredible awards. But there you go. And he is actually very entertaining and also an absolute authority on travel. Um, and at the same time that we were actually at that event, uh, Taylor Swift was, of course, in town. So it was actually really fascinating to see what an impact such a successful artist can have on a city. So good and bad, obviously, for and challenging for, for travellers um, because there were literally no hotel rooms available. And when we flew out on last Friday night, our flights with both Qantas and Virgin Australia were delayed and many cancelled due to actually weather. Um, and the only option was paying about
1: $700 for a box of a hotel room. Oh, I know, it was crazy. Between... Between bad weather and Taylor Swift, it was a perfect storm. The information boards at Sydney Airport were just full of cancelled flights. I had a chat with a pilot friend who's worked in the industry for decades. I won't name him. But he said that Australian airports and airlines drop the bundle when it comes to weather impacting on flights. And he told me that generally pilots feel that Australian air traffic control is simply too conservative and too risk averse compared with European and Asian air control. But the thing is here... That when air traffic control makes a call that the weather is too bad to fly, as in the case last weekend, it was lightning strikes around Sydney, the airlines are off the hook regarding compensation. So what it means for us, the traveller, if you're having to find a room at midnight when Taylor's in town, the airlines don't have to pay you back. They leave it up to you to fork it out and claim it back on travel insurance. But how many of us have travel insurance for domestic travel? Yeah, certainly don't back to Teite and the
0: economic impact to the industry from her visit is obviously significant and as a traveler it means there's much more open so more pop-up eateries and places to drink and interestingly there have actually been some really varying reports as to what the impact on the economy will be from Swifty so the Australian Financial Review has reported that the concerts will add 10 million dollars to the national economy which is highly conservative to what others are saying so research from rmit uni valued the national economic impact of taylor's swift errors tour at more than half a billion dollars and tourism australia had it at even higher didn't they bell
1: yeah yeah well they were saying you know there were six hundred and twenty thousand tickets for the seven concerts held in sydney and melbourne which they say generated 35 million dollars in ticket sales And so Tourism Australia estimates that there was a $1.2 billion boost to the economy through flights, accommodation, restaurants, Ubers, not to mention Spotlight, who ran out of beads and wire, which Swifties used to make friendship bracelets. And I mean, of course, Tourism Australia is going to be more buoyant. And you know, the media has been absolutely consumed with it. Did you see, Kirsty, that Tourism Queensland offered to rename a sand key, you know, like the strips of sand up on the Great Barrier Reef? Tay if Taylor went up to Queensland for a holiday. It was just, oh, they put out some page ads. Um, no, sir, she nothing. has, I know, she has already stayed at Hamilton Island before in Qualia, which, you know, Costa bombing is very fabulous and totally worth it. Um But, you know, that it was, I think, I don't know about that, um you know, the, the Fin Reviews pieces, because, you know, Melbourne Airport faced its busiest day bef- since before the pandemic, and... Um, you know, people paying $1,500, you know, for flights, you know, just from Sydney to Melbourne, if you searched on the day, you know, it was, there was very little, um, you know, we're in, we're in 400 was like an absolute bargain, but most of them were five, six, seven hundred. coming back through Melbourne airport before the tour, which I was from Tasmania. It was full of Tasmanian Swifties, you know, it was, you know, with their glitter and flanny and stuff like that. And the same thing going up to, um, Sydney and Melbourne, coming down to Brisbane, I heard there were so many delays and there was so much of a rush. They were actually bringing A three hundred and eighty, so the international, you know, the international sized aircraft, running down from Brisbane to Sydney just to cover the demand. It was it was incredible. It's all varying
0: scopes and how you look at it, I guess. So and the flow on effect. So, um, but anyway, regardless of what the figure was, it was a huge injection into the local tourism hospitality industry. And while it can be tough for us travellers who might not like the act that's going on in town, whether it's Tate or Pink or Punk Icons Blink One Eight Two have all performed here actually in the last week. Then there's um I guess there's just no denying that it creates a, a great energy. There's just such an, a great energy in the air when when someone's playing, and you know the, the atmosphere is just sort of electric. Um, and as I said before, there's obviously a whole lot more options when you're out and about.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think the thing is. You know, just to consider, you know, remind yourself, consider when you're booking a holiday to make sure that you aren't being hit in the pocket with overpriced hotel rooms or flights because of an event that you're not interested in. And that obviously applies regardless of wherever you go in the world. You know, if the F1's on in Monaco that week, cherry blossom season in Japan, although, you know, who doesn't want to see a cherry blossom? Um, Or, you know, something enormous like the Football World Cup, which comes to New York in July 2026. And it's hard to miss at the time but you know if you're booking a year in advance you, you know you've got to check what major events are on and 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 uh, yeah are you going are you going to cop the brunt of it in your pocket for something you don't really care about
0: you're listening to the world awaits we'd love it if you could leave us a rating and review on your favorite podcast platform This week, I'm interviewing Louis Thompson from Nomadic Resorts about how he's flipping luxury travel on its head by creating hotels that are effectively flat packs with a low carbon footprint, and he's won two UN recognitions in the process. And make sure you stay listening to the end because you won't want to miss his thoughts on how AI will have a positive long-term impact on eco-lodges in the future.
2: Welcome to the show, Louis. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here.
0: Let's start by tell us a bit about your background and what inspired you to
2: launch Nomadic Resorts. So my background is a little bit strange is that um, I studied hospitality management in France and uh, back in 1999, I did a business plan for a zero carbon hiking lodge in Reunion Island in the Indian Ocean. And uh, that was a little bit ahead of its time. And um, subsequently, I got offered a job at Six Senses Resorts and Spas, working Mm. for a guy called Sonu Shibdasani. And uh, initially, I was employed as the agriculture consultant. So I was designing organic vegetable gardens, fruit orchards, and uh, even a mushroom hut, which was the first mushroom cultivation in the Maldives. So that was back in sort of, 2004 um and that's how I really got involved with the hospitality industry and the kind of farm to fork restaurant concept and then a kind of strange thing happened was there was a tsunami in uh in December 2004 and well vegetable garden pretty bad as you can imagine <laughs> um and then uh, and then I got kind of um I got kind of integrated into the project team to help me rebuild the resume. and at that point, my roles then became very different, and I must done quite well at that because they kept me on, and I I worked with Sonu for eight years after that.
0: Really incredible, incredible uh, places to work in and 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 uh, things to be involved in, like you say, um, ahead of your time. That's for sure. Um, and so when you're in Mauritius now, tell us how you how you ended up there.
2: So. After I, I worked for Six Senses, I was doing all sorts of kind of special projects, a little bit all over Asia. So I did, um, you know, I worked in Maldives first on a on a tree top restaurant, and then I moved to do a kind of vegetable garden stroke outdoor dining experience in Hua in Thailand. And then I was brought on to do a project called Son of Akirim. And uh, that was a, a kind of private island resort in uh in, near the coast of uh cambodia and thailand so we moved out to Korkut, the island on which that resort was, was built and it took a sh- huge amount of time it took nearly i think probably five years i was involved in the project from, from inception through to openings probably five years um uh, it's a super luxury resort with you know, jetties and river speed boats and private airplanes and landing strips and all this kind of thing and it was a super complicated super elaborate super expensive uh process and at the end of it i think many of us on the project kind of figured this wasn't actually going to make any money because it was just the construction cost was too expensive and it had taken too long to complete. so that was how we really came up with the idea for nomadic results was basically we did a kind of post-mortem on that project internally. This was not with the rest of the Six Sense's team, I might add. This was more like the people who were on site who'd had the direct experience of building each thing. And and we concluded that basically the future of hospitality uh, would be kind of flat-packed. So if you imagine IKEA furniture, um, how we'd imagined it at the time was that, you know, you can prefabricate modular buildings in a kind of controlled workshop stroke factory environment and then ship them to the site this was a very isolated site very everywhere, mud of wild animals kind of crazy place and they could be assembled very quickly by quite a small team of workers who knew what they were doing uh so that was the theory so sometimes the joke that's taken me is so ten years to pitch a tent, which is actually kind of, <laughs> sort of away. Um and that was really why we called the company about. it so the idea was you could do a kind of luxury hotel accommodation option that could be designed for disassembly, so you could take it to pieces and remove it and it's useful life. Had a very low carbon footprint and was energy efficient by its very nature. And, um, and it could be installed by relatively unskilled people with the appropriate tools in very remote locations. So for example, all of the members, all of the structural members had to be carryable, I'm not sure if that would exist, but I'm going to make it up. Maybe it'll catch on. So carryable by two people. So you see what I mean? So everything could be, you know, you could, you could get this thing into remote locations on steep hillsides, or cliff faces or whatever. Um, without necessarily needing to have you know, big art and machinery and backbones and excavators and JCPs and that kind of equipment, basically.
0: And it was, in fact, so innovative that you were recognised by the UN. So th- that must have been just a remarkable achievement when, when that came
2: about. Well, actually, we got two UN recognitions. Uh, the first one was when we built, built our first resort in, in Sri Lanka, Wild Coast Tented Lodge, the restaurant we, we had developed for that project was a kind of bamboo grid shell, big kind of bamboo dome-like structure. And that was recognized by, um, UNESCO who have, uh, every year they have a thing called the Pied Site, which is, uh, um, basically the UN prize for commercial architecture. So this is quite famous to have won it like Shigeru and stuff, um, and Basically that prize is given to, you know, outstanding commercial architectural buildings. And, and so first one we won was, uh, yeah. The prevail site for the best restaurant exterior. So that, that was a kind of design award for our design company, nomadic Resorts, and then we developed a, a business plan for a, Ping. a project that I'm very, very much focused on now with nomadic escapes. And Nomadic Escapes is is basically a zero-carbon, nature-positive, outdoor-lodging brand. Um, so, we put together this business plan, which kind of turns traditional hospitality a little bit on its head, because fundamentally, you know, most traditional resorts, to be honest, they to be around the bush too much in this, are quite extractive and can be quite exploitative in terms of their practices sometimes. So, um, you know, there's obviously the carbon footprint, but there's also, you know, uh, relationships, with local community, um, a lot of issues about over-tourism, a lot of issues about land ownership and access to beaches and access to the see. There's a lot of fundamentally behind, you know, your glossy, you know, uh, influences galloping along the beach at the sunset, you know. Um, there's actually quite a lot of baggage behind the hospitality industry generally so we kind of figured well what would happen if you said to yourself you know that you were going to create a hospitality project that had a net positive influence on both the environment and the local community so that's what we did and it's what we're doing so the idea is fundamentally this is that you identify local communities who need some kind of economic uh, impetus or in economic investment in their community who have access to kind of wonderful sites, for example. And then you set up a collaborative model whereby a nomadic escapes. The idea fundamentally is that for each room night you sleep in one of the tents or the, the ba- bamboo cabanas, mud houses, or whatever it may be in each location, like site, uh, we'll plant one tree. On behalf of, of of your of your guest now which i know sounds like a relatively small but actually what it does is if you combine that with rewilding practices regenerative agriculture farmaculture community-based activities you can actually get a kind of positive feedback cycle so instead of being uh a kind of carbon guilty indulgence a lot of travel is uh you could have a, a situation in which each of the each of your vacations you know could potentially result in the planting of of a small you know forest of you know 20 30 trees and um and then you could actually basically buy up degraded land, replant degraded land and create we call um and it has to be, it can't be a, a sort of a monoculture, it has to be more kind of agroforestry concept. Um, but basically, you could develop, you know, a nature positive, regenerative landscape project on a long term basis to restore degraded land base.
0: And do you think travelers are uh, the two questions I have? Um, one is, can you, can you explain to us, like, as a traveler, what, give me an example of, put me in the picture of where I am, what my experience is like. And then the second part of this is, do you think travellers are actually that invested yet? Or is it still evolving? You know, as far as we all say we want to do the right thing, are we actually doing the right thing? So let, let's start with, first of all, place me somewhere. Like, where am I staying? What does it look like? Am I in a Or is it just a room? What does it look like? And, and, and how am I, uh, you know, what's my experience like as a traveler when I'm there?
2: Okay. So yeah, yeah, I'll give you a real life example, actually. I think this is a good opportunity to introduce a project called Ombalabao, which we're doing in the Southeast of Mauritius. So Ombalabao is located, um, overlooking a lagoon called Le Mans. Uh, which is very famous uh, natural feature in Roosters. Um and it's also one of the most famous kite surfing spots. Right, so at uh, On your experience would be you would go up onto a hillside. Your, you know, electric vehicle, taxi, whatever would come and take you the apple, drop you at the reception. Uh, that's got a green roof and a. kind of watering hole for wildlife and then you'd go up into the resort and be introduced to your cocoon so we have a tent called the lupa which was inspired by the form of a caterpillar cocoon so caterpillar cocoons are kind of interesting things because that whole process of metamorphosis uh, that happens between the caterpillar and butterfly is kind of an interesting uh, analogy Uh, so it's uh, it's it's a space of security, comfort, but also transformation. So these are quite luxurious spaces. You know, they've got four-meter high ceilings, ensuite bathroom, they've got uh you know, high thread gown sheets, uh, but they've also got a massive facade uh with a spectacular view of the green. And we have a process we call biophilic design, which is basically to connect the indoor and outdoor spaces so that people have a real connection with their natural environment while staying in these rooms. And um, so fundamentally, you've got a lot of natural light, natural ventilation, beautiful views, uh, endemic landscape, um, and you've got but a very high level of personal comfort. Now, the thing about the whole experience is the whole experience is articulated around three themes, as well as the sustainability act. There's another, which is the wellness aspect, which I think is really critically important. And the third one is adventure sports. So the reason we chose these three elements is basically because a lot of people are unhappy. So if you think of the majority of people living in an urban environment um, across the world, but, you know, they say Asians can be a real and real issue uh particularly Asia Pacific region comes to mind. Let's say you're living in a small apartment in Delhi with a lot of noise, a lot of pollution, a lot of digital anxiety social media insecurity, which I think they need across our society feel. Um everybody wants to suddenly have a six pack you know, super supertoned arms or luxurious, voluminous hair. Uh so basically a lot of social media plays off people inadequacies and um and so all of those things together created a kind of a little bit of a toxic environment for many uh in their day-to-day living um so what the idea of nomadic escapes is is that basically when you come to nomadic escapes you've got three things well what side then or relative silence, you've got space and you've got light and air and views so, those things are super critical because they're actually a form of luxury. Most people don't identify it as luxurious, Um, but are really critically important to your mental health and personal well-being. So, we've got over a thousand receptors in our skin that uh, thrive on the impact of sunlight on our bodies. Um, you know, we need fundamentally; it's an intrinsic need of Human beings to interact with their natural environment. So, we have that within our DNA itself. So, what we realized is that fundamentally, our society is increasingly attenuated. So, people live in a little box, they get in a little box to go to work, they get out and they get into a little cubicle and they can say hi to the other people in the other little cubicles, but essentially, they're getting from one little box to the other. Um, and because things like churches or a lot of traditional communal activities have really suffered, particularly during COVID, a lot of those activities even more have, have been even more degraded. Um, it's very rare that you get together and have some communal activities. So basically, the adventure sports activities for each camp is your kind of opportunity to bond and meet other people. In the resort. I'm sure we've all been to like a resort or a lodge or a camp, where it's just not friendly you get people on around them because there's not really any opportunity to introduce yourself or and and we're not that good at that anymore anyway. anyway um so there's a lot of things that make it kind of isolating a quite a lonely experience sometimes. um so what you said is okay let's create you know a, hike, a diving activity kite surfing mountain biking tour whatever it may be get people together getting to have quite an intense physical experience together, bringing back to the camp, put them around the campfire, give them the beer and see if they can get on with each other. So fundamentally, this was, so it's, it's connecting people, connecting to nature and connect, connecting back to yourself. That's really the, uh, yeah, that's what we do.
0: And is that the same concept for these sort of pop-up ones that aren't, uh, that aren't, you know, permanent structures?
2: Yeah, even more so. So those ones, I mean, we wanted to do some stuff where, you know, you take a bunch of people and you dump them for a couple of nights out there or in forests with no internet connection. Lacks
0: of my I- <laughs>
2: Yeah. Uh, uh, they're not quite not quite that spot. But, yeah, I mean, I, I think also, you know, we're victims of comfort. So i a little bit of discomfort and that doesn't necessarily, it's not necessarily harmful. So maybe something... So you want to do these satellite experiences where you kind of go out and really have an immersive experience in nature and, uh, and yeah, get away from it all, basically. Uh, switch off the phone, deconnect, chill out. To come back to that second part of my
0: question, so then do you think it's more about that than it is about people actually wanting to or feeling like they are being part of this bigger picture which is you know you tra- obviously with the um you know net zero and nature positive experience do you think it's more about it's more about connect connection and off-grid than it is about actually giving back to the environment or is there or is there a bit of both i mean what what are your thoughts on how and what are you seeing that the that travelers are are wanting um because this is obviously driven a lot of what you, of your creations right i mean these this is your audience
2: so I, I think that come back to that idea of uh, of well-being personal well-being you know if you feel like you're going on holiday and you're doing something positive that supports your values you know your fundamental values and I think a lot of people have concerns about environmental degradation a lot of people feel a lot better if they felt they were doing something actively positive towards the environment so that's part of it you know there's obviously that thing of the environmental guilt or carbon guilt um, that that's certainly something that comes into play but then there's also there's just that whole idea of um you know by creating these spaces and creating these environments using techniques like rewilding you know you can create nature rich environments in which people can really actually just experience nature and I think that in itself is something that's extremely healing for many people in, in our society today. So I, I think there's a couple of different things. There's one, you know, feeling good about yourself positive. Second is, you know, feeling good because you're surrounded by nature, some birds, some beetles, and stuff going on around you. Um and then I suppose the the third thing is to be able to do that with people with shared values, like minded people. Well, that's another thing, is if you can target people who have a similar value system or, or concerns about environmental sustainability, I think they would also tend to get on well.
0: Yeah, amazing. So if if I wanted to do one of these shorter term, you know, these pop-up sort of experiences, how how long are they in existence? Like how long, so, when, so say, you know, if you're going to, you do these sort of IKEA flat pack, which aren't, they're more like more of these sort of cocoons or pods or there's a variation, aren't there, of what you've actually created. And how long do they exist then in in a certain spot or, um, you know, once you put them up or it's variable? Yeah,
2: so basically, I mean, in Wild Coast, in Yada, I mean, we've completed that project in 2018. So that's already six years up. Um, Now they've asked us to do a pop-up satellite experience to that one. So that you could stay at the camp and then you could go to one of those nature camps somewhere else in another national park. We have designed a, a new tent recently, which is a pop-up tent, which can move according to the seasonality. So that one that, that we're working on at the moment called the Ypsilon, um, is basically that one, you know, you can disassemble because it was for a specific seasonal experience in Sri Lanka. So you could go to the east coast of Sri Lanka for three months of the year, you could you know guests guests would typically stay you know, anywhere between two to seven nights you know often people are kind of incorporating that into another itinerary so they'd also want to go and do some tours and other stuff so typically i think you know two to seven nights whereas in someone like on by Mauritius which is a big kite certain spot you get people who will come and stay for a longer period mm-hmm. we've seen this in the kite certainly industry generally is there's some quite wealthy people who are perfectly happy to spend, you know, two or three months of the year on a good, ice surfing break and and basically live that experience on day to day basis. So really, it really very much depends on the on the situation and the and the site. Basically.
0: What what do you think the um, future holds? What does the future hold for you guys? What what's what sort of um which area are you focusing on and or or what um, evolution of your Um, of these incredible uh, (laughs) creations, which we'll put a link in the show notes so that people can see them themselves.
2: So, yeah, this might be a bit of a surprise to most people, but um, I'm actually very interested in how AI can be used to increase the performance of this type of product. So it may sound a little bit bizarre because most people think, you know, this is a kind of anti- Digital detox, yeah, kind of thing. But actually, um, artificial intelligence itself is very interesting at in studying data sets and increasing optimizing performance. So, I'll give you a kind of an idea of how this could work. So, basically, the price of solar panels since 1967 has gone down by like 82%. So, renewable energy is cheaper. So, the possibility of doing off-grid camps is becoming cheaper more accessible and more realistic um as time goes on so you know that's one graph where the price of traditional fossil fuels will go up and the price of re- uh. renewables will go down and at some point it will cross over and it's just going to be cheaper I mean, it might really um so that's one thing is that but what ai can do now is basically ai will be able to study energy and water use and correlate that with the energy and water collection in a much more effective way than's been done through here uh, using weather data sets to you know calculate the probability of high rainfall events and such at such a time another thing that we think you know is going to be very interesting to see is you know transformation of let's say you going think I mad. But Let's say I've done a lot of organic vegetable gardens and they're quite labor intensive and they're productive, but they're not overproductive. productive. I also think that one thing we will see is we will see, you know, basically highly efficient organic agricultural systems that have a technology element to it. So there's a system called aquaponics, for example, where you can grow fish, and you can grow vegetables in the same closed-loop system using the nutrient-rich effluent from the fish to, as a uh hydroponic medium to grow the vegetables so those kind of systems already exist and they're very sustainable very low water use, and super productive what well, my question is is you know could those could those kind of what we call um low-tech or, or traditional ecological ecological knowledge from communities let's say you take paddy field system in bali or you take the floating vegetable gardens in South America um by using advanced technology could you create can you improve those systems these systems have already existed for thousands of years but could there be improvements in productivity um that allow you to basically be virtually independent in terms of food production, energy production, water production consumption. Um, and how does technology stitch into that? And then how does it also fit into the green building? So, you know, we build a lot with bamboo and bamboo is a relatively unpredictable structural material in some respects compared to steel. But if you had sort of super efficient engineering softwares using ai can you analyze how to build a bamboo structure with much less material or can you analyze you know how to create a mud break that has significantly better performance thermal performance installation i think all of this stuff is kind of crazy kind of frontier um and i, I like to teach it in the way that the ai you can see it ai can be a darth vader style style presence in the world right? with a sort of dystopian uh, dictatorship vibe to it you know facial recognition software and ticks and crosses against people with names and credits and whatever uh but it could also might actually be used in another sense it really depends on how we want to use those so you know ai could be a kind of um Alan Watts style, super wise, nature focused, Terence McKenna style, fungal kingdom, how are we going to grow mushrooms? How are we going to decompose our waste? It could be completely different. It could be a much more positive thing to create enhanced lifestyles people, um, in a much more sustainable way than has been done before.
0: Amazing. We're running out of time, so I'm going to ask you uh, the last question, which is the question which we ask all of our guests, which is, can you tell us what's the most bizarre travel moment you've
2: ever had? Actually, the kind of the bizarrest travel moment (laughs) is this. So after the tsunami in the Maldives, we were all completely freaked out, lost our stuff, everybody had lost their shoes and their baggage and their clothes and stuff, It really smashed up the incandation. And um, out on one of the structures that we were building in the lagoon, there had been a team of South African car- carpenters who put it the top, And they'd seen the wave arrive and they couldn't swim. So they saw the wee- w- wave arriving before everybody else. So they had to climb up these columns and the columns like shook vigorously as the wave went past. And so these guys were terrified and these were like big kind of super macho muscly dudes yeah zulu guys right so when they came back to the land they wore orange life vests like all the time you know life jackets yeah like all the time <laughs> and uh, and then in the evening of the 31st because there were no guests we had a big party in the restaurant with all the stuff which is very unusual so you had all the indian Maldivian the African guys, that everybody's suddenly in like the one of the most luxurious restaurants in the world. And Peter Nielsen managed to find a DJ three days after, the sooner, uh, the and soon he can't assume how he did that. And at the moment, they uh, DJ played give me Oak Joanna, and this team of like eight Zulus got on the dance floor wearing bright orange live jackets. <laughs> And did a traditional zulu dance oh it's so nice and um yeah that was one of the most bizarre moments traveling or other you're seeing these guys doing a traditional kind of i don't know what it's cool but it's uh it's pretty impressive that's amazing black mamboza style dance routine um in the middle of the maldives uh wearing a lap or a slide <laughs>
0: Look, thank you so much for your time. And we'll put all the uh, details in the show notes. And um,
1: it's just been great to have you on The World Awaits.
2: Well, thank you very much. Sutton's times. Uh, really appreciate it.
1: Louis is definitely ahead of the game. And when it comes to the evolution of luxury travel in the environment, I, I can't wait to see what Nomadic Resorts does next. Check out Louis' properties at nomadicresorts.com. Our tip this week is about the most overrated tourist attractions so that you can avoid them. A recent study by Vision Direct looked at 106 locations that regularly appear on our bucket list. So they had to have a minimum of 5,000 trip advisor reviews, And then each was scored on a percentage of whether they they were poor, terrible or average reviews, um, the rating for them and the number of Instagram hashtags and the number of TikTok views. And the survey found that the most underwhelming landmark in the world was the Berlin TV Tower in Germany. Which <laughs> I mean, you know, the name doesn't sing together. <laughs> but the most frequently mentioned words or phrases in the negative reviews were things like expensive, overcrowded, rude, and a waste of money.
0: And in second place was Moulin Rouge in Paris described as disgraceful, terrible, disappointing, cheesy. And outdated. Um, a common complaint was the cost of the attraction in relation to the quality of the experience, with words like overpriced,
1: low quality, and waste of money. And third is the Telangalil Rice Terrace in Bali, which um, which reviewers described as a tourist trap, commercialised, overexploited, and a ripoff. Don't hold back people, but the real reason it seems is because it simply is overrun by Instagrammers who are ruining the location. So, um, which is such a shame because, you know, these terraces are gorgeous and they're also a UNESCO cultural landscape for their unique agricultural structure. So it's a shame to see on this list. My hot tip is there are actually two fabulous places to see these terraces. So I would go to uh, Jetalua, which is a little bit further away. It's actually much bigger. You can really get, and you'll love this, Kirsty, a good long walk between the terraces. And and I mean, they are beautiful. I think that's that's one of the things, um, you know, that they, they probably don't deserve. Yeah, absolutely. And they, they're so culturally significant. Um,
0: others in the top 10 list are the White House and the Hollywood sign. I have to say, I have to agree with the Hollywood sign. I mean, I haven't actually literally been right up onto Mount Lee, but I have been there and standing underneath it on the ground. And, um, you know, it's, Sort of just a sign, so um, I guess you you got to have realistic expectations. But I don't agree with the Great Border of Thailand and Phuket, which came at number nine. I found the sheer scale of that was is pretty remarkable. I mean, you can see it from pretty much everywhere, um, in southern Phuket. But not that that theory helped the Hollywood sign.
1: To <laughs> I was I was quite shocked to see the Guggenheim in in Bilbao in northern Spain on the list. Um, There are also a lot of towers in this list as well about places to avoid, like the Tokyo Tower and Seoul Tower. But, you know, they're just viewpoints. And you know the rule of dining economics means the higher the altitude, the worse the food. (laughs) So we'll put the list in the show notes and you can make up your own mind. Next week, my guest is none other than the incredibly charming Kevin Maloney, one of the stars of Channel 9's Travel Guides show. He appears on the show with his wife, Janetta, as the snobby travellers. But as you'll find, the former travel journalist, he's so warm and funny, he's going to give us a peek behind the curtains of the TV show, which has sent the two of them travelling all over the world since the show started in 2015. I mean, they were already veteran travellers long before that, being in the industry for decades. But oh, I tell you, they've had a whirlwind
0: ride, those two. Mm, haven't they? And I can't wait to hear about that because and I'm Kevin and Janita are stars, literally, and I've also long admired Kevin's work as a travel writer. So you can follow them
1: at Jess and Kevin on Instagram to keep up to date with their travels. And if you would like to help support our production costs, you can buy us a coffee or a chai latte, Kirsty. Matt. <laughs> <laughs> coffee.com which is ko-fi.com forward slash the world awaits so we can continue to bring you inspirational travel interviews with the world's best that's a wrap for the world awaits this week click to subscribe anywhere you listen to your favorite pods and where can people find you kirsty I'm
0: at Kirstie Writes on Instagram, that's K-I-R-S-T-I-E, Writes,
1: W-R-I-T-E-S. And where can people find you, Belle? You can find me at globalsalsa.com or on Insta at global underscore salsa. Thanks for listening. See you next week.